Welcome to Joyfully Queer, a podcast dedicated to celebrating the vibrant colors of our community and the strength and resilience that lies at the heart of it all. I'm your host, Bethany, your guide to all things queer and joyful. I'm an activist, an artist, an interfaith spirituality and wellness coach, and a proud member of the LGBTQ community. Here at Joyfully Queer, we are exploring the beauty of our lives and identities. We're here to be a reminder that our joy is powerful, resilient, and absolutely worth celebrating. From the smallest victories to the grandest of achievements, we're diving deep into the moments that make our souls sing. We're here to have fun, explore the fullness of our stories, and celebrate the impact that being free to live our most authentic lives has, both in our community and in the world. We'll be chatting with incredible guests, exploring personal narratives, and unpacking the things that makes the queer experience special. So whether you're a member of the LGBTQ community or an ally, Joyfully Queer is the place for you. So let's get started. Welcome back to my favorite part of the podcast, where we talk about our glimmers. This part of the show is a time to lift up the things that make us smile and celebrate moments that remind us all that even in the midst of life's challenges, there's always a glimmer of joy. This week, I accepted a new job, and I'm super excited about it. Um, And yesterday, my new supervisor wrote an email introducing me to the team. And in that email, she used they, them pronouns. Now, I go by both she and they, and most often people default to using she and her, which is fine. I identify with she and her, but I do really like when someone uses they, them every once in a while. Anyway, what really excited me about seeing her use they, them pronouns for me in the email was that it was just seamless. We didn't have a conversation about pronouns during the hiring process. She saw my pronouns in my email signature and used them without making a big deal about it. It's a a small thing, but it made me really happy. So that's my glimmer for the week. If you have a glimmer that you would like to submit to the podcast, you can do that by emailing joyfullyqueerpod at gmail.com. And I hope you will. Thanks. With me today on the podcast is my dear friend, Adam Gonzalez. He's a queer artist and a DJ working in the Kansas City area under the name Sir Queen. I'm delighted to share this conversation that we had together about the power of being unapologetically yourself. So let's get started. When you were growing up, what were the messages that you heard about being queer? I would say most of them if any, because um, in the small town I grew up in in Texas, um, within the, um, I was raised by my family, my biological family who were Mexican immigrants. Mm -hmm. And so, but then I also grew up in a small um, conservative town that was very, um, very white, very rural, very Mm -hmm. um, Christian, very conservative, um, very straight. 
um, cishet. And um, to me, like those growing up in two kind of two different cultures at the same time, like at home, it was Spanish and Mexican traditions and mm. tamale making and all the all the things that come with with being unapologetically Latino. Um, but then also you wrap in my Catholic upbringing and experience and then these sort of um, uh, traditional American Christian environment around me. Um, queer identities just were not talked about. Yeah. It was not, um, it was not, it wasn't talked about. And if it was present, if, if people, if queer folks were present, they weren't really recognized okay. or, or I guess, I guess I should say they weren't acknowledged. Um, because looking back, I can, I can remember, I can remember seeing people, um, at church, seeing people in the, just in the community people I worked with at the, like I started working at a grocery store when I was 15 individuals who at the time I knew something about them was different. Mm -hmm. I was like, Hmm, I always see those two guys at Walmart together. Yeah. But I also see them sitting together at church in the very back pew and they're quiet and they stick to themselves and they never talk to anyone. And I know their families and their families just never talk about them something's different, right? Like as a kid, I I saw that and I knew that, but it was never spoken of. Mm -hmm. And so for myself, um, at an early age, knowing I was queer, knowing I was different, knowing I was not that which I saw all around me, um, uh, it was hard to kind of, kind of, um, express just my identity, um, understand my identity, because at some point I was like, well, you know, I think as humans, we're used to, we're used to identifying with others. We're used to identifying with groups. We're used to saying, oh, those are my people over there. Like, those are the people that have the same interests, or they think the way that I do, or they feel the world around them the way that I do. And for for queer folks who grow up in in environments where you don't know who your people are, and you don't see people or perceive people to be like you, um, you kind of, you kind of grow up with this like otherness. Um, and so for me, I already was familiar with that sense of otherness from an identity perspective, because in many ways, my skin color, my last name, my home environment, um, my linguistic skills and processing, like I, up until junior high, I just, I thought in Spanish, but I spoke in English. And then sometimes my words would get, you know, um, mixed up. And so I was very familiar. I was intimately familiar with that sense of otherness. And so as it related to my queerness, I just didn't know how to, it was like, um, it was like having all the ingredients to a salad and not knowing like how to put them together for all the pieces of a puzzle laid out in front of you and not knowing what it's supposed to look like in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's kind of, that was my experience of just being like, okay, I know I'm different. I know those two people that I always see are different and I don't know why or how to express or articulate what makes us different from all this around us. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I knew that I knew that it was something I wasn't supposed to talk about. 
I did know that. Now you've come a long way in your life and uh, maybe we'll get to some of that. But what I'm really curious about is how have the messages about being queer changed? What do you hear now um, that's different than what you used to hear when you were a child? The messages are much more positive. Mm-hmm. But I think it's because it's I think it's because I over time um, when you work through enough trauma in your life and you do the work, you learn to take ownership of your environment, you learn to take ownership of your choices, you learn to take ownership of of the energy that you um, put out into the world mm-hmm. and the energy that you choose to consume. And so in many ways, mm-hmm. I this is going to sound, I'm totally going to own the privilege that like just kind of the privileged nature of this, but I control the world around me in many ways as much as I can. And and I say that not as a, like, I control everyone around me, but I am very selective with um, the uh, environments I put myself in, the situations I allow myself to get into, the relationships I get into. Um, not that I'm overly conscious, but I'm also very aware and I'm very aware of of what I bring to a relationship or to a situation. I'm very aware of who I can and cannot be for other people, um, because I think it's fair that um, that I that I I lead with that and that I'm honest and transparent. And so now I feel like, in many ways, I've sort of tailored my life to um, surround myself with other individuals who who see joy in their queerness and who, who see happiness in being unapologetically themselves, unapologetically trans, unapologetically queer, unapologetically queer and black, unapologetically queer and Latino, you know, Mm -hmm. um, all of these, all of these different intersections that make up the people in my life are intersections that I relate to on many, on many levels. And so these days, it's almost like, I guess I could use the term echo chamber. I don't think I live in an echo chamber, but in many ways, when it comes to my inner circle, I recognize that I've been very fortunate to have people in that inner circle who who celebrate me and my queerness just as much as I celebrate them and theirs. Um, and so I think that's something that I've, I've held on to because I know that without Without the individuals in my life, without the people around me, I, you know, throughout the different stages of my life and different parts of my journey, um, mm-hmm. without the people who are and were supportive, I wouldn't be here today. Yeah. So these days, the message around me, the messages I consume, the messages I put out into the world um, are much more messages of um, not even just queer tolerance, but radical queer um, celebration and, um, queer excellence. So I know that music is something that brings you a lot of joy and it is also a way that you spread joy throughout the community. You do that, you know, um, in your club sets and, um, through your work with Kansas city pride, things like that. And I was wondering if you'd like to speak a little bit to what is it about music that brings you joy and why you want to spread that Uh, with our community early early on music played a huge role in my life 
And I think looking back, it was more of a, um, it was more of a, a protective mechanism for me from a lot of the trauma that I was experiencing as a child. Mm-hmm. And so I truly was that kid who was lost in music all t- all the time. I was that kid who had headphones on me 24 seven. I had my Walkman and then my you know CD Walkman and then my MP3 player that I saved up for one summer. Mm-hmm. And um, music was just a, a a window into a world that I just never thought I would ever be a part of because of my surroundings, because of where I grew up, because, because I just didn't see other musicians and I didn't see people, I didn't know people who were interested in the same types of music as me. And um, some of the music I was interested, I wasn't, I wasn't supposed to be interested in. And so, um, so for me, being able to say, hey, as someone who is unapologetically queer, how, how cool would it be for um, some um, young person who's, who's taken to pride by their parent or guardian or friend and who 20 years from now can say, you know what? I was 12 when I went to my first Pride Festival and I went to this tent because I heard this music and it turns out it was disco and I loved it, right? Like, like how cool would it be <laughs> for someone to, at a young age, be connected, to, for example, to a style of music that came from our community to begin with, that was a part, mm-hmm. is a part of our history, is a part of our, of our, um, of our, just our nature, is a part of our protest, is a part of our unapologetic queerness. and so. To me, I'm like, that's a simple thing that I can do. I can just put that out there. If someone comes across it and it touches them and it affects them and they're like, that's awesome. Cool. <laughs> you know, because I I didn't have those environments as a kid. I didn't have those environments where I could be exposed to things and say, oh my gosh, that's awesome. What is it? Um, and so for me, I'm like, yeah, my friends and I, I have a queer, I have a collective of queer DJs um, who, you know, we put on events. I'm like, we can do that. You know, give people a place to just get away from um, the heat, first off. <laughs> um, ah. But a place to, a place to connect with music if they so choose, if they want to. Because, you know, pride in a big city like this isn't just for us city folks. Pride in a big city is very much for people who come from the areas around the city who don't get to connect to their rainbow family, mm-hmm. who don't have a rainbow family. And so I want us to be able to give them every opportunity to connect to the many aspects of our culture as possible. Um, you know, um, when it comes to entertainment, let them connect with the, with the drag entertainers, let them connect with the singers, let them connect with the musicians. Let them connect with a dance tent. Let them connect with face painting and dancing in the grass. You know, um, I want I want to be able to offer that, and so that's something that I see for myself when I think of um, of my journey and kind of where things are now. Um, I see myself as someone who's in a position um, where, if I choose, I can help be a part of um, kind of filling the world with more queer celebration and excellence. You know, we're not even in the same city and I feel like you filled my life with so much queer joy and excellence. So yeah, I'm so happy that that you've made it to this place because I think that there's um, a lot of power in claiming like your joy and claiming that the space around me is going to be a space that is for me. 
Um, and I, I think that that's a hard transition for a lot of people who have been taught their entire lives that spaces are not for them. So I'm curious, can you think of how you made that transition from being in spaces that were not yours to claiming spaces as yours? When I think about it, you know, growing up Catholic, it was the environment that I was born into that I had no truth. I had no choice in. Um, there were environments I was in that um, weren't always the healthiest, um, that didn't leave me without my own trauma and um, things to process. But I think to myself about the transition from feeling like a stranger in my own spaces, meaning those those I was born into, those that were just the environments around me. Um, but going, you know, moving from that to being able to claim space for my myself. Um, I think I think my entire life I felt like I didn't belong in those spaces. And I knew it. Um, you know, from the time I was I was in Sunday school and um going to church retreats, I knew I was in those spaces to escape mostly in my home life. Um, and I made the best of it. Mm-hmm. Turns out that when you're in youth group and you're talkative and you're outgoing and you're funny and you can ha ha through the pain, <laughs> turns out you're kind of a popular person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it mm-hmm. turns out the church will send you on trips to these conferences and they'll send you on mission trips to, you know, preach the gospel in Central America, especially if you're bilingual. Um, and so I was always aware of the fact that I was in these different spaces and situations mostly because of who I was just as an individual, you know, just as a person, my personality. And it wasn't until I was in college that I started to realize, oh, I can still be that boisterous person who likes to learn about people and connect with others and gets excited about things. I can be that person without being in this fishbowl. Mm-hmm. Fishbowls. I can go to another aquarium. I can you know, I could choose to live on land if I want to. Um, and so for me, you know, specifically when I was in the seminary, it took some soul searching to realize, oh, I can still be this person who I, I am at my core without, without the, um, the religious context, without the, you know, commitment to celibacy, without the, you know, insert any of those things about my life at that time that were kind of not me. Um, and so for me, once I realized I could be the same person at my core in or out of that environment, even more so out of that environment. Um, once I realized that, I think that was the transition point. And that's when I started to say, you know, once I left the mon, once I left the monastery, um, you know, a year or so later came out, um, I mean, once I came out, I, I burned that thing down. <laughs> I mean, it's a pile of glitter and ash. Uh-huh. There was no closet. There was no turning back for me. Um, and so for me, I think, I think that was, you know, that was the point. That was the transition point between, you know, recognizing, oh my gosh, I'm in these monks robes and I connect with people and I have passions and I'm excited about things. And some of those things I have to keep under wraps but I could be this person outside of these robes. I mean, with clothes on, but you know, right. uh, but I could be that person. And, and then 
from that point on, I'm, I kept moving. And then once I hit, once I hit the point where I came out, I was like, yeah, no more people telling me to, Hey, you got to tone it down. Um, Hey, don't walk that way. Hey, don't listen to that type of music. Don't paint that kind of art. Um, once I let that stuff go, I let that stuff go. I am a person who, once I, once I pick a path, I go, and that's just a part of who I am. And that is a characteristic of just who I am as a person. And so I think that that allowed that transition to happen as radically as it did for me. Um, I think if I, if I wasn't the kind of person I am, if I was, maybe if I was a little more timid when it comes to decision-making, or maybe if I wasn't as strategic of a thinker, um, maybe if I just wasn't as, um, sure of myself as I, as I have become over the years, um, it would have been different, but there was definitely a point where I started to take ownership of, and I, and I think a lot of it, I would say now that I think about it, I think a lot of it came through, um, my experiences in therapy and understanding my own childhood trauma and understanding what I can what I cannot, what I should, and what I should not take ownership for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think when we, any of us go through any type of trauma in our lives and we start to unpack that for ourselves and start the journey of healing, I think it's, an, I think there's a very important step in all of that where we start to say, Hey, this is not mine to own. Mm-hmm. I own it as a part of my lived experience, but it, I don't own it in the sense of it was my fault. Right. I don't own it in the sense of, oh, I could have done, I should have done, I would have done. But I can own how I respond to it. You know, um, I can own those times when I allowed it to, to, um, you know, to, to run my life or to negatively impact those around me and by choices I made. I can own those things. And so I think for me, just as a person, starting to understand that internally as it related to my trauma and the way it affects in my life as an adult, I was able to translate that. And I was able to translate those skills into um, just other parts of my life. So owning my environment, owning my identity, owning who I show others that I am. Um, Early on, I, I don't remember where I heard this, there was just this mantra of you have to teach people sometimes how to treat you. Like very often we have to be the people who set boundaries. We have to be the people who say and stand up for ourselves and say, no, that's, you got me all wrong. Let's go. Let's step back. Right. Let's. um, And so I think for me growing up, I was anything but that kind of person. I was very much a, yes, you, you tell me that I don't belong here and I nod and I say yes, and I don't belong here. And then I live in misery on the inside, even though I'm smiling, right? Um, as an adult, somewhere along the lines, I realized, oh, I'm a grown ass man now. <laughs> I can look at that person in the face and say, I'm not going to let you traumatize me today. I no longer let people dictate how they treat me because if they're not going to get with the game plan, then I change environments. I can go along. I can 
mm-hmm. our paths can diverge, right? And so I think earlier on, I, I learned um, as an adult that I have the power to, to help people understand like, hey, I get it. Parts of, parts of who I am, parts of my identity, parts of my expression um, are going to maybe set off flares and alarms and bells and, in your mind because of how you were raised and the environment you were, you were in and the ideologies you were given. And um, you're going to fall back on ways of treating me based off of how you've been taught to treat people you perceive to be like me. But we don't have to go that route, right? I can help you understand who I am. I can answer questions. I can be an open book. Um, But we don't have to go the route of you making me feel like other. Yeah, I think that's so powerful because a lot of times, um, if I'm not like constantly aware of it, um, you know, I go into like people pleasing mode and then I have to go, no, wait, I don't have to please this person. Like I can be who I am, but it's a, it's a hard thing to unlearn. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, I think that that I can relate to that. Yeah. I can relate to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that that idea that we can teach people how to treat us is huge. Mm-hmm. If you could make uh, any changes in the world to make it a more joyful place for um, kids like you, what would you change? That's a great question. I think I would get rid of limits. Mm-hmm. I think I would. I think I would. I, I think so often to my own story and my own experiences, and I think very often to um, people I've watched who have limitless talent, limitless potential, limitless um, passion and energy, who limit themselves because they've been told they should. Mm -hmm. Who limit themselves because they've been told we've never had um, a queer Latino go to state in tennis, right? Mm -hmm. They've always been told, "Mm, no, you you're just you're not made for that position. Mm-hmm. You're not made for that role. Um, we've never had someone like you in that role. Mm-hmm. I think very often we listen too much to the limits that are kind of thrown in our face. Um, you can have two people who are identical in talent and skill, and one of them has been told their entire life that the sky's the limit. Go for it. Go for the goal. Win, 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 and they will because they've been told that they can. Yeah. And then you have the same, you have the other person who's been told, no, people from our family, people from our country, people from our background, people who are poor like us, or people, you know, insert whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, we just don't belong in those spaces. We don't belong in that podium. We don't belong in that boardroom. Mm-hmm. And so you start to believe it after a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think those limits that we put on each other keep so many people from really pursuing um, their full potential. Yeah. Now that is also void of any external social, um, you know, social barriers and social um, structures that are also at play. Mm-hmm. Um. But I think it's still at its core. I think each of us, each of us needs to 
um, be given the opportunity to drown out those limiting voices. Adam, thank you so much. It's truly been a delight to have you on the podcast. Um, I really hope that you'll come back soon. If you liked this episode and want to help the Joyfully Queer community grow, there are a few things you can do. Please make sure you like, subscribe, and leave a positive review for Joyfully Queer on your favorite podcasting site. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Joyfully Queer and on Instagram at Joyfully Queer Podcast. I truly want this podcast to represent our community. So if you would like to be a guest on the show, or if you have a topic that you think would make a great episode, please email me at joyfullyqueerpod at gmail.com. Until next time, this is your host, Bethany, wishing you a queer-tastic day.